Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and our guest today is Christine Platt. Christine is an author and the woman behind the Afro Minimalist Instagram account. Her latest book, The Afro Minimalist Guide to Living with Less, is our topic of discussion for the day. The book is focused on the why behind our buying habits, and it challenges the reader to be a more conscious consumer and to work towards living with less. The Stacks Book Club pick for July is The Best We Could Do by T. Bowie. We'll be discussing the book on the show on Wednesday, July 28th with Mira Jacob. If you're looking for a way to support the work of The Stacks, please join us over on Patreon. You contribute $5 a month and earn perks like our monthly virtual book club, discounts and merch, and shout outs on the show. Plus, you get to be a part of an incredibly wonderful bookish community. So head to patreon.com slash the stacks to join. Thank you to our newest members, Nikki Anderson, Aaron Ross, Molly Vanderlyn, Clara Jacob, and Jimmy Sherman. Thank you to the Stacks Pack for making this show possible. Now it's time to share my conversation with the wonderful Christine Platt. All right, everybody. I'm so excited. I'm here today with Christine Platt. She is the Afro minimalist, if you will. I think that's that's your like <laughs> other name. And she's the author of The Afro Minimalist Guide to Living with Less. Christine, welcome to the Stacks. Thank you. So happy to be here, Tracy. I'm so happy. We connected online months ago and I just love watching you and love seeing what you're up to and your home and your your clothes and just I just <laughs> am so obsessed with you. And so I'm very happy to get to talk with you today finally. I'm happy to be here. Okay, so we'll start where we kind of always start, which is in about 30 seconds or less. Can you tell us about the book? The Afro-Minimalist Guide to Living with Less is a reimagining of minimalism, um, focusing more on authenticity than aesthetics, um, because mainstream minimalism is so focused on the aesthetics. And it really just gives a holistic um, approach and process to letting go and encourages people to create a lifestyle with less their way. Is that 30 seconds? I think, I don't know. I tell people 30 seconds or less and then I never pay attention because I don't actually care. But you know, there's some people who will go on for like five minutes. So I try, I learned that trick early on in podcasting. Um, Okay. So what I'm, there's so many things I want to talk to you about in the book. So I'm going to try to like stay focused, but who knows. When did you realize that folks needed this book? Like when were you like, oh, people are doing this wrong or like in a way that isn't necessarily right for everybody like and I should be the one to like explain to them that there's another way yeah so let me just okay I'm gonna break that into two parts so first um I realized folks were doing it wrong a long time ago um (laughs) but that was only after my own sort of trial and error and I shouldn't say doing it wrong um I should say sort of more focused on aesthetics, again, more than the practice of what minimalism really means. Um, And I didn't know that I would be the one (laughs) to address it. It so happened um, that during the pandemic, uh, it was last summer, my agent and I sat down and she's like, you know, I think this would be a really good time for you to write 
your Afro minimalist book. And I was like, you think so? <laughs> like literally this is how it started. I put together a proposal about what I, like what I thought um, the best approach would be for people who were really looking to live with less, who may feel intimidated by mainstream minimalism, the unofficial rules, all, you know, there's just so much information out there and everyone, you know, seems to be an authority on the subject. And um, <laughs> I was just like, you know, what is the book that I would have wished, you know, that I wished I had when I got started on my journey? And I wanted that to be just more of a practical guide. And I should also say this, it's not to like poo-poo on anybody else, right? Um, you know, there are many wonderful minimalist practitioners. And I say the same thing about their works as I do about mine, which is sometimes you just have to take a little, you know, and leave a little, right? Yeah. Like everything does not necessarily, you know, work for you and your lifestyle. And what I really want people to understand is that you can pick those bits and pieces and create a minimalist practice and lifestyle that works for you. Yeah. That was one of the things I loved in the book. You mentioned um, Marie Kondo's folding and you were like, yeah. I actually realized that I can't have anything folded anywhere. Like, so everything's just in my closet. And I thought that was <laughs> such a great example of like, look, and for me, I'm, I'm recondoed and I still fold my socks. So yeah, <laughs> there you go. And that's the thing. Yeah. Like, I mean, I can't marry my closet all the time. I just don't do the folding. Right. Right. And so I, I, I like to use that as an example where, you know, it's almost like this light bulb, but they're like, actually, yes. Why would I be folding things if I'm not a folder? Right. But like, that's how, um, you know, again, we just get so beholden to sort of these minimalist ideals and practitioners, right? And you almost feel like it's not a religion. You right. know what I mean? Like you can right. pick and <laughs> pick the pieces yeah, um, that work it, best for you. It feels like with minimalism in this weird way that it is really rigid. Like it feels like mm -hmm. these are the rules or like, and for people who don't know what minimalism is, I guess we probably should have backtracked. We'll get there, I guess. But it feels <laughs> so rigid. And it feels like, it almost feels like added stress, which seems like it's mm -hmm. the opposite of the point of doing it. It's like, I'm going to get rid of all these things so I can like feel better and just live in a space that feels like clean and comfortable and feels like yeah. home and all these things. Yeah. And then it's like, I have to fold my socks or like, I but have to But you know do what, this. Tracy, this is what is so wild, which is why I call it the, the and I, I would have never even chosen the name Afro Minimalist <laughs> if I had known. <laughs> um, I, but when I started, I really didn't know. Um you know, much about the practice of minimalism. Like most people, I had been drawn to the aesthetics of it, right? right. Um, but by the time I was writing this book, I'm like, you know, if I say living with less, if I say being a more mindful, intentional consumer, even if I say decluttering, it evokes a totally different mm -hmm. <laughs> response than when I say, you should think about being a minimalist. All of a sudden, it evokes this aesthetic that we're mm -hmm. so used to seeing mm -hmm. online. And people are like, I can't live with one fork, one knife, and one spoon. I can't only have one chair. And you have to say, like, that's not what minimalism is, right? And so I think that's where that rigidity comes in at. Mm -hmm. You know, it's more what mainstream minimalism has has just somehow become this represented ideal, which, by the way, is like the complete antithesis of, like, every minimalist practitioner I know, even like some of the big names, like, you know, Josh and Ryan and, you know, Joshua Becker and Courtney, like no one lives like, right. <laughs> you know, this minimalist aesthetic that we see online. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know where, um, well, I mean, I know it evolved out of like this, you know, 1940s, 1950s art form, but I don't know how that became the face of minimalism, but that is what really makes people think they either can't pursue the lifestyle, can't adapt to the lifestyle. But like the minute you say, you know, you just, just think about living with less, or you should just be a more mindful consumer. Right. Or you should just be more intentional. People are like, I can do that. You know? Well, yeah. That's what I liked about your book is that it didn't feel like I need, I need to do something. It was sort of like, mm -hmm. look around what's calling out to you? And I was like, my closet full of, you know, I, I don't think I told you this, but I woke up in the middle of the night halfway through your book and was like, 
having an anxiety attack of like, I need to get rid of clothes. Like I like woke up just feeling like I need to get rid of these things. Cause I, <laughs> I knew that I did, you know, yeah. like they were literally like haunting me in my sleep. Like and I'm you not don't laughing. Like I'm not laughing at you. I'm laughing because I literally will wake up in the morning and I will either have texts from my friends showing me bags of things that yes. they had gotten rid of overnight. I sent you my bags. I sent you my I bags. Have, yeah. <laughs> I have DMs, right? look at what I did. I just read this chapter. And that is what is so exciting to me because again, it's just, we just really need to acknowledge our overconsumption, which is why I start that way in the book, right? Like before we even jump into letting go, like, let's just, let's talk about why we have more than we need. Mm-hmm. And let's talk about why it's so hard to let go. And then once mm-hmm. you have that foundation, yeah, you might wake up in the middle of the night, <laughs> you yeah. know, and like, I really have too much stuff in my closet yeah. and I really need to let it, you know, I really need to let some of that stuff go. Yeah. And like when you start, it's not that hard. The early stuff is sort of the easy stuff. Cause it's the stuff that you're like, I am comfortable getting rid of this dress that I've yes. never liked. You know, like I'm comfortable with these shoes that smell so bad. They need to yeah. go. Um, <laughs> just because we didn't really lay the groundwork to like mainstream minimalism. When you use that mm-hmm. term, what are you referring to? I'm usually referring to what we see in the media, right? So what we see on Pinterest, you know, even what we see on Instagram sometimes, right? This minimalist aesthetic or this minimalist ideal, um, which is usually captioned by, you know, (laughs) a minimalist farmhouse, right? And, you know, it's like this 5,000 square foot farmhouse over, you know, overlooking the sea that has, you know, one table and two chairs, you know? And so like, It's interesting because people are drawn to the simplicity, but then when it's implemented into their own lives, they realize how impractical Mm. it is, right? So you have people who are drawn to the simplicity, or you have people who look at it and say, that is absolutely ridiculous, right? (laughs) And those are the people who are like, I can't be a minimalist. You have people who are drawn to the simplicity. They may try and, you know, mirror that image and it just doesn't feel comfortable. It doesn't feel good. And that's what happened to me. So I was the former. much like you just had a lot of like (laughs) anxiety and panic attacks, you know, just like, God, there's so much stuff in here. Like Mm -hmm. once you sit down and acknowledge it. And I remember just being like, I have got to get rid of some of this stuff. Like Mm -hmm. it's just too much stuff. Right. And I wanted one of the minimalist ideals that I saw online. And I mean, by the time I got rid of everything and I painted all the walls white and I had all white, you know, linen and every, and I was just like, this is so depressing. <laughs> so, I was so depressed. And I say that, you know, some people, they love it. They love like a very monochrome decor, right? Again, this is why you have to do what works for you. Um, and, and trying to mirror that aesthetic and that ideal, that's how I ended up becoming the Afro minimalist because I was like, okay, so this is not going to work for me. I can live with less, but I got to have some, I got to have some culture. (laughs) Okay. I want you to talk about that part. So you're not just, you know, you're not just a minimalist. You're the Afro minimalist, which, you know, you're a black woman. (laughs) You are, you know, your aesthetic is, you know, you incorporate things from black culture and you talk about that in the book, which I think out of everything in the book that is, was the most resonant for me. And I can imagine is probably very helpful for other readers, black readers and other readers of color or people from other marginalized groups is that you acknowledge that there's a reason there's psychological reasons or there are cultural reasons why, you know, we might have too many sneakers or why we might have too many books or DVDs or like that our relationship to buying might be connected to you know, our history of having been owned, you know, and that there's, yeah. there's this deep connection. And so I'd love for you to kind of talk about how you came to that and then how you incorporated, you know, your blackness um, into your aesthetic and into your brand, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. So with the book, um, you know, obviously like the principles and the letting go process that I have, that's universal. It can be adapted by anyone or again, you could take a little, leave a little, <laughs> what works for you. Um, but I, I thought it was especially important that I have these for the culture call outs because there are historical, generational, like there's all of these different areas of consideration that again, mainstream minimalism. And when we, you know, in the media, when we see these representations, it just doesn't address. Um, The example that I like to give is um, someone having two Bibles, 
right? Mm. And a white minimalist practitioner or decluttering expert may come in and say, you don't need two Bibles. They're both King James Version. Like, you need to get rid of one, right? And depending on your culture, um, you may need both Bibles, right? Like maybe that second Bible is your great grandmother's Bible. And you like to look at that whenever you're going through a really tough time. You like to look at the passages that she highlighted. You know, it connects you and grounds you in a way spiritually. And then you may have this other Bible that is your practical Bible that you actually take to church, right? And like, those are just you know, just two examples of how sometimes culturally there are things that are significant and important to us um, that may not necessarily fit this framework Mm -hmm. of like, you can only have a hundred things. You should only have this many books, right? I'm like, you got to figure out what works best for you, right? right? Find that, you know, that middle ground. And so for me, I wanted people to understand though, why some of those things may be um, more difficult. And I think one of the things that I love so much is I have heard from a lot of um, white minimalist practitioners, white decluttering specialists who said, this book is so helpful to me because these are considerations that I never make. Right. When I'm, when I'm going into, you know, uh, someone's house who is BIPOC or I'm going into someone's house and, you know, I, you, they just go in with this framework because this is what, they've been taught or trained to do, right? And so taking in these um, elements of cultural and historical significance and understanding that these are important aspects of Mm -hmm. people's lives, right? You know, some things are more than just things, is what I like to say, right? right? Of course, of course. And then for me, um, you know, how this happened is, you know, again, I tried to mirror this aesthetic, And I was just like, I hate it. Um, and I said, you know, what what most black folks do when we want to like claim something for ourselves, we put like Afro in front of it. So mm-hmm. I was like, I'm going to be the Afro minimalist. And what that means is that I'm going to have a minimalist life inspired and influenced by the African diaspora, right? I'm a historian by trade. And, you know, I have books and uh, fabric and just so many things that have like stories, right? And, um, you know, things that I brought back from West Africa, which was like a trip of a lifetime. And just being able to incorporate those elements into my decor um, has just made my style of minimalism just very authentic. And because of that, I'm able to maintain it, right? So, you, you know, you also find people that are like, I tried to be minimalist and I just couldn't do it. (laughs) I'm just like, so there's a few things that may be contributing to that. Number one, (laughs) you don't understand why you have more than you need, right? Two, you don't understand why it's so hard to let go. So you don't understand your attachments and motivations, right? And three, you may have tried to adapt, you know, a minimalist ideal or aesthetic that just doesn't align authentically with who you are. And that's, why you can't live with less. It's not that you can't do it. You just need to figure out a way to do it your way. And then also understand what some of your, you know, triggers, behaviors, patterns, what are those things? Right. And so I like to call it a process of self-discovery. I don't Mm. think anyone should just hop into their closet like you did in the middle of the night, although you had actually read the book. So that I had read the book and I had con I had done Con Mari and like and I'd also had children and the pandemic. So like I was prime for this moment. You were ready. You were like, I'm ready. I I didn't actually get up in the middle of the night. I waited till the next day. And you know, I'd practiced. I I was I had done a lot of the stuff before. Yeah, but But, you know, I'm glad that you said that because I do think, you know, there are people who have not done that background research, right? And, you know, they try and they're completely overwhelmed, Mm -hmm. right? And, like, that's what happened to me. I had no real information or knowledge beyond what I found online and blogs. And I'm like, this is going to be a weekend warrior mission, right? And Mm -hmm. I pull everything out of my closet and drawers and there's just all of a sudden mountains of stuff in my room and I'm just sitting there like, what do I do now? (laughs) Right. And I'm crying and I'm feeling all of these emotions. And so reflecting on that when I was writing the book is what made me say, what's a more holistic way Mm -hmm. that we can approach this letting go process, right? Like 
Let's acknowledge our overconsumption. Let's forgive ourselves, right? right? And then let's move on to this process of letting go. And then, as you know, step four is let's pay it forward with the things that no longer serve us and allow them to serve someone who who they can, you know? Right, right. Um, I want to get to that part because I have a lot of (laughs) thoughts about about that. So hold, please, on that, on part four. But uh, (laughs) so one of the things that you said a few times and that really also resonated, a lot of this book resonated with me. I'm going to keep being like, this resonated with me, but a lot of it did, um, was that this idea of minimalism as a practice, right? Like that it's something that it's, if you're doing it authentically, if you're doing it from a place where it does work for you and you find that balance in your life, it's something that you practice every day for the mm-hmm. rest of your life conceivably if that, yeah. if you so choose or whatever that means. But I want to know about when you make mistakes because one of my experiences with minimalism was that the, the first time I sort of got rid of everything with the KonMari like a few years ago, sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night and I think about a dress or two that I Aww. miss. But I'm like, God, I would look so cute in that right now. I really wish I had it. <laughs> And those are like really basic ideas of, you know, really basic examples. No, I love that you say that, Tracy. No, it's so funny. And this is why I tell people not to rush, right? And so that dress got caught up in a rush decision, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't like to call them mistakes because language (laughs) matters, (laughs) right? You had some experiences, you know, you made some decisions, like there are ways that you can frame it, right? Um, Because again, there's already so many negative emotions surrounding Mm. this. Like I try to be very mindful of language. And again, this is me. This is all through learned and lived experiences, Tracy. This is me like after beating myself up, right? How could you waste so much money? How could you be so stupid? And I'm just like, wait a minute. Like these were experiences I had, decisions Mm -hmm. that I made Mm -hmm. when I didn't have the knowledge and tools and resources that I have now. Like, oh my God, girl, cut yourself some slack here. Yeah, totally. Right? And allow yourself to move forward. But yeah, you know, I really like to encourage people not to rush because Mm -hmm. of that very sort of scenario that you, um, (laughs) that you mentioned. Um, and I, I think when people, you know, realize that this is truly a practice and a lifestyle that you're adapting to rather than an aesthetic, you realize what am I rushing for? Like there is no destination, Mm -hmm. you know, like I'm always going to be considering reevaluating letting go, paying it forward with something, because as we grow and evolve, so do our needs and changes and what we want, right? Um, You know, I'm sad for you. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) it's a minor thing. Yeah, the dress is gone. But you know, and, and again, it also makes us think about, you know, you have an attachment, you had an attachment. Yeah. to that. Right. And, and whatever that attachment was, I can assure you it was beyond it being cute on <laughs> you. Right. Like maybe it, you know, you felt that it best represented who you are. Right. Or, you know, maybe you had some fond uh, memory or experience in it. Right. But like those attachments, I, I love that you brought up the stress now that even more now that I think about it, because, <laughs> um, you know, I think a lot of times people think they let go of things and then, okay, that attachment is broken, but it's not, it's not necessarily true, right? Like you may still think about something, right? But then at the end of the day, there's this element of being content with what you do have, right? That wasn't your only dress. No. And I don't think about it every day. And I got right. rid of it in 2016 and it's just started to come back to my mind. I think because it's no, also in style. Like, no, I don't need it, but I just really want to wear it. It was very cute. It was ruffles. It was very girly. I don't know. Uh, but I think also like when you, once you get to the place where you are, it's like you're living, you, your home is beautiful. You have the things that you feel that you need, use, and love surrounding you, because that's mm-hmm. like the cornerstone of kind of your your philosophy, need, use, love, or one of them. Do the do the um not mistakes, but do the experiences <laughs> that you that you reflect on and maybe yearn for another outcome, do those are those harder when you have less things or are they easier yes. because you are like more comfortable? You know, it's so funny. I don't miss a single thing. Mm -hmm. I don't miss. And I, you know, I get this question. They're like, surely you miss. I'm like, no, I really don't. First of all, I took my time. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, How how long did it take you to get from to where I am right now? Yeah. I I started. 
maybe not to where you are right now, but like to a place where you felt like, okay, this is where I want to be. Uh, I would say a good three years. Okay. I mean, I'm five years in okay. now. Right. Um, and I'm still letting go. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, I really took my time and, um, you know, things that I, there were things I really struggled to part with. And because I didn't have a framework or, you know, a holistic process, I just put them aside, mm-hmm. you know, and what ends up happening is maybe two or three months later, you realize you still haven't worn the thing. And it would be much easier for me to let it go, right? But had I let it go that first time I was considering it, I might have been like, dang, what if I hadn't given that away, mm-hmm. right? But like looking at it three months and being like, girl, you are not going to wear this ever. Right. Stop. Right. Right. <laughs> right? Um, I also give a lot of things to friends. Um, and I encourage people to do this. Like if you feel like, I don't know, I really love this dress. I haven't worn it. I don't really need, I don't know. Let me give it to one of my friends. Give it to one of my friends. And I'm like, if I ever want to wear this dress again, you better let me. (laughs) I'm like, okay. Right. (laughs) Because sometimes that, um, you know, attachment is so weird. Like sometimes it's just knowing Mm -hmm. where something is. Right. Mm -hmm. And so like, if you knew where that ruffle dress was and it was in one of your girlfriend's closets, you probably wouldn't be like, (sighs) right. Totally. I wonder if I, you know, yeah, like, so that attachment sometimes is really just rooted in the comfort and security of knowing we have something, which is, you know, really a mild form of hoarding. Right. You know, like when we think of hoarding, we think of, you know, what we see on television, but so many of us hoard because we hold on to things for future use mm-hmm. possible possible future right 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 right. right. and it's like I have to remind people like that's hoarding I know your house is not like overflowing with things but like that is a more extreme form of hoarding but hoarding is you know the working definition is really like you know holding on to something for possible future use Mm -hmm. I can't get rid of this because I may need it in the future so I always say like put a time frame on that future use three months is usually pretty good yeah if I don't need this in three months, if I don't wear this in three months, if I don't use this in three months, I need to let it go. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. Okay. I want to talk about paying it forward because, and paying it forward, but also sort of the practical parts of this book that I I found to be really great. Like no spend months as like an exercise (laughs) or your wardrobe capsule. I want you to talk a little bit about that because I thought that was really interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, And then also, the paying it forward part, because I think for me, that part made getting rid of things even easier. Cause I was like, I mm-hmm. know this is going to, it's going to be used, you yeah. know, and like, I that's mean, so critical. And I didn't realize that until later, as you said, you know, those first few rounds are really easy. It's those things that like you've been needing to get rid of forever. Right. Right. Um, but then you get down to the good stuff soon, you know, after like round two, round three, you're like, Ugh, everything in here is really nice, really expensive, <laughs> even though I don't need to use or love it. Right. And what really helped me was knowing um, that these items were actually going to be used by women who needed them. Right. And I encourage people, you know, look for whatever mission, cause or matter is close to your heart. And it just makes it so much easier to let those things go, right? Because you talked about you, a, a suit going to, girl, or a dress that going. Ca- that, oh, no, don't mess it up, Tracy. I can't black remember. Black Casper suit. Yes, black a suit. Casper. Okay, I got it right the first time. I knew it was like business. I love biz- that black Casper suit. I knew That's it was like, like your fabulous business chic <laughs> moment, but I couldn't remember if it was like a fabulous shift dress or a fabulous suit. Yeah. I knew it was good. But you agonized over it, and eventually you found Dress for Success. And you yes. donated it there and they help women to um, have the appropriate clothes to be able to go and do interviews for jobs, yeah. women who are coming out of shelters or, or yes, unhoused they're women. they're like just starting their lives anew, right? And there's there was just something, I remember how I felt in that suit and knowing that it would be going to a woman who should be like hella proud of herself for the life choices that she made to be able to start over and to know that she would be wearing that and just feeling like how I felt in that power suit. Like, I mean, 
if I could have handed it to mm-hmm. the woman myself, I would have, right? Like it just, right. it made it, it made it so much more um, impactful, right? I think a lot of times people worry um, and with good reason about where their donations are going. Um, you know, Goodwill recently uh, did an article about, it, it's called wish, wish Cycling. And you're essentially wishing and hoping mm. and praying that someone gets your little thing that you're dropping <laughs> off, right? <laughs> right. Um, and if you've ever had a chance to look in the back room of a Goodwill, you would understand like how unlikely <laughs> that right. is, right? And so I feel like a lot of people will hold on to things out of, you know, this idea. I don't. I mean, I don't want to overburden this organization. You know, there's also people, this is too good to donate, you know, like, Mm. again, like their language, this language that we use. And I think when you pay it forward and those items are going to uh, people like directly to service people in need, or if they're sold, you know, that the resources, the, the proceeds are going to further this mission. Like you're like here, yes please take it because you're paying it forward with a cause um, that I believe in. And, you know, this idea that Goodwill and Salvation Army and the other usual suspects, these thrift stores just magically sell everything is just not true. And, you know, they only have so much space as well. And um, a lot of stuff ends up and landfills. And, and, you know, I just recently learned the name for that is wish cycling and they're like do not drop off your wish cycling donations no one wants your broken toaster right they're not going to find the heating element to you know what I mean like the right. wishing and hoping is so um just unrealistic right and so I think if you can find ways to pay it forward um buy nothing groups are also my new jam do you have one in your area like every I'm sure I've not I've, I was just thinking about it so we have twins that are 18 months and I've been Ah. lucky enough to have friends who have kids coming up. So I've sort of created my own buy nothing group. group? I haven't bought any, I mean, I've bought everything, but I haven't, I've been giving, like we were able to give away their car seats because we drove like 3000 miles in the last year total uh, because of the pandemic. And so they were basically brand new car seats, you know? And so things like that, I've been able to give to people. And you talk about that in the book, being able to give things to people directly is usually your best bet because you know that it's going somewhere and you'll feel really good about it. And uh, Mm -hmm. my husband has a nurse that works with him who has a little boy that's I think nine months younger than our boys. And so they just get bags and bags of clothes and she is always in need for them. So it it just feels really great and easy. And and I have no problem getting rid of their stuff because uh, it's not mine. That's awesome. (laughs) So you have your own, you have your own buy nothing group. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but I think there's like Facebook groups for those, right? Like you can find them on Facebook or online. There's Facebook groups, there's um, buynothingproject.org, and that will basically list every Buy Nothing group literally like around the world, Um, and it's just really magical. It's a way for you to not only, you know, make sure that your things are going to people in need in your community, right, but like you get to meet your neighbors, like Mm. you have a lot of fun. Yeah, okay, I got (laughs) to check one out. Because my kids, yeah. need, they need some older kid toys and stuff. So I feel like maybe <laughs> maybe I got to get into that. Um, okay. Tell us about your wardrobe capsule because I'm obsessed with this idea. Yes. Okay. So again, as you like, you know, go through the different rounds, you start to see what your authentic style mm. is, right? Like once you start clearing out stuff. And so what I realized is I actually hate pairing tops and bottoms. <laughs> I realized like, like it's not that hard of a decision, but apparently it is for me. Right. And so I realized I had more dresses and jumpsuits and I was just like, that's kind of really more my jam. Right. I don't want to spend a lot of time in the morning thinking about what I'm wearing. I want to know that what I slip on is going to feel comfortable, make me feel good. I'm going to look good. And, you know, dresses and jumpsuits, they do that for me. Mm. Um, But I remembered even after I had, you know, cleared out a significant portion of my closet, I still felt like I should say closets, plural. I had gotten it down to one. (laughs) Um, I still felt like I just had too much. I was like, there's still a lot 
of stuff in here. And that's when I'd heard about Courtney Carver and Project 333. And it was a fashion challenge where you um, select 33 items to wear for three months. This, of course, doesn't include like undergarments and workout clothes and all that, right? Um, and again, you know me, I'm tailoring it for what <laughs> works for me. So I think that first round, I, I, I'm pretty sure I had more than 33 items. Let's say I had 50 items, though, but I'd still whittled it down. And yeah. I was like, let me see if I can do this. And then I just loved it, Tracy. Like, it just <laughs> made my morning. I was like, oh, my gosh, this is everything. And then winter rolled around because I started uh, spring, summer. It was a dream. Winter rolled around and I remembered how much I hated winter. <laughs> and I was like, I need a uniform. I just need a uniform. And yeah, I just have like a winter uniform where, you know, it's either, you know, like a t-shirt and a blazer and jeans when it starts to get really cold, um, you know, chunky sweater and jeans, but it's just like this uniform. I know what I'm going to wear. It's never going to be this heavy lift of deciding what I'm going to um, put on. And so what has resulted is, you know, this really curated, beautiful wardrobe that I love that y'all see all the time on my, yeah, y'all are always like, Oh my God, you look so beautiful. And I'm just like, my jumpsuit. Yeah. You know? <laughs> um, and so I really like to encourage people to, you know, as you're decluttering and going through your closet and going through your things, like, what are some of the silhouettes that you naturally gravitate to? Because mm. here's the thing, Tracy, and you know, like, even in the morning, when you're going through that whole hectic rush, what do I wear? What do I wear? You can try on three to four different outfits. By the time you look at that clock, and you only have five minutes, what do you naturally gravitate right. to, right? It's mm -hmm. the same pairs of jeans, it's the same dress, right? It's the same. And like, that's sort of like a clue for what your authentic style is. What silhouettes work best for you? What makes you feel most comfortable? What makes you feel more beautiful? And as a result, now when I go into stores, I can see a pretty top and I can just acknowledge it for what it is, which is a pretty top. And I can say, Christine, you know, you hate pairing tops and bottoms. Girl, don't buy that. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I know now that that is not, um, it's just not a style that works for me, yeah. you know? But do you, okay. This is a practical question for me because I want to try it, but I need, I need some answers. Do you, you have your 33 items or so, let's be honest, mm -hmm. or so. Mm -hmm. Everything else that you have that's not in that season's capsule, where do you store that? Well, now because I have so few things, like everything can fit in one okay. closet. Okay. It's a really small closet, but that's a really good question. Like how do you delineate I it as like, this is this season and I'm not going to grab that sweater or whatever? Yeah, I, it's a good question. I think what you should do if you have the space, right, this is, you know, if you have another closet or you have a storage bin or something like you can have your stuff seasonally because what it's very rare now that I get something new, right? Mm -hmm. Because if I get something new, that means that I need to make space for it. So I got to mm -hmm. get rid of something else, right? Um, and so I, I don't really it's not this idea that you're going to be purchasing 33 new items every season, of course, right? Of course. It's like, yeah, when you get into that next season, you'll say like, oh, you know what? I only wore this sweater a few times. Maybe it's time for me to pay it forward with this. And I can get a sweater that I, that sweater that I saw that I really liked, right? Mm. And so you may be replacing one or two items per season. Um, but yeah, you just keep them in a, in a place where they can be stored and ready for next season. And uh, it's really a dream. I love it. Okay. I, I can't am wait a to big, try. big fan of Project 333. Okay, I'm going to do it. I, I love a challenge more than anything, even more than decluttering. I love a challenge. <laughs> um, okay, the last thing I want to touch on in the book before we take a quick break is gifts. Yes. Because gifts are a motherfucker, I feel. <laughs> Because they're sort of, they can sort of be a burden, you know? It's like, I'm uh, trying sort to, of? well, sometimes you get a gift that's really great that you love uh, and you're like, this is a it's dream. It's rare. It's rare. <laughs> it's rare. Usually for me, that's food, which is a gift yeah. or like maybe a candle or something. But those are the kind of mm -hmm. gifts that you talk about people who are striving to, or who are in the practice of being minimalist. You talk about them giving those kinds of gifts, gifts that yes. can be used up, gifts that can disappear. Gifts. Disappear. Yeah. Um, but you also talk about how to deal with gifts that you don't want. 
It's so important, Tracy. It's so important. And I tell people this all the time, like saying no is not mean. It is setting boundaries, right? It's saying no, thank you. You know, when you open that thing, whether or not you want it, right? right? And if you allow it, if you allow it to come into your life, if you welcome it into your life, into your home, you feel responsible for it, mm-hmm. right? And so that's the thing for me, I had to get to a point where I just had to say, no, thank you. You know, you know, I'm trying to be minimalist. I appreciate the gesture. Like there's all sorts of nice ways that you can decline things, but I had to say no, mm-hmm. because otherwise I bring it into my house and then I feel responsible for it. Mm-hmm. And I feel especially guilty letting it go. Even if I pay it forward, oh my God, what if Tracy comes to my house and she asks me about that thing? You know what I'm saying, right? And what happens is, you know, first of all, people who love you, who truly love you and care about you, they will respect your boundaries, right? It may take one or two or maybe even three (laughs) declines and conversations before they get it and say like, okay, Tracy's really trying to live with less. And the next time they go to buy that gift, you know, they either take into consideration, like my friends do. I'm like, if you absolutely have to buy me something, it has to disappear, mm. right? Like incense, candles, food, soap. There's so many things. If you have, because some people are very much, um, you know, giving gifts. That's their love language. Yeah. And the idea of giving you a gift card or, you know, saying, oh, Tracy, just know I love you. They can't even fathom it. (laughs) And so for those folks, giving them ideas about gifts that will be um, welcomed by you is very helpful. Um, You know, also getting people to understand that, you know, you can, there are so many different ways that you can do gift giving. I mentioned in the book, one of the best gifts I ever received was from Heifer International, right? It was a colleague who had gifted um, a calf on my behalf through Heifer International. And I got to know about the village that it was going to, how it was going to benefit this community. And it was just so impactful. And, you know, this is when I was in big law and, you know, my colleague knew like, you don't need anything, right? right? Like, but I want to give you something and I want to do, let's do like some charitable Mm-hmm. gift giving, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, to to just really think beyond some of the ways that we, and it, and it, it goes back to just being intentional, right? You mm-hmm. know, like this is a big part of the book and the practice for me, right? It's just giving that extra consideration mm-hmm. to be intentional. How can I be more intentional with this gift? Yeah. One of the best gifts that we got for our wedding anniversary that we now ask for when people ask, like, what should I get? Mr. Sachs or Tracy or whatever, is we got um, gift certificates to local restaurants. Yeah. And that's such a great gift because we get to Mm -hmm. go out and try a new place. And sometimes, you know, if someone's asking like what to get for my husband, I'll be like, oh, we really want to try X, Y, and Z. And they get us a gift card for that and we get to go and enjoy it. And it's perfect. And there's no stress and there's no like, oh, I need to wear this the next time I see Christine or like any of that. (laughs) It's so great. Yeah. And then in my family for Christmas, we have a decent sized family and we do $50 to a charity and a book. So you get one physical thing to open because we're all big readers. And then Mm -hmm. everyone puts together a list of three to five charities that they love. And so you announce, you know, like we do like Secret Santa, like I'm giving Christine this. And then also I got this book that goes along or doesn't go along or whatever. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. There's so many ways to be creative. Um, You know, I, I think I shared with you before that my daughter's favorite birthday party and the only birthday party that she remembers yeah was the one where I had kids bring canned goods they were only supposed to bring one canned good to get (laughs) entry into this ridiculously massive carnival that I had created in the backyard I wasn't a minimalist yet Um, (laughs) but you know it's just like I knew Nala did not need another thing and I was just like I'll just, just, they can just bring a canned good and we can donate it to our local food pantry. And it was like the night before the party and the morning of the, I mean, these parents were like frantically texting. They're like cleaning out the pantry. I thought they were supposed to, what's happening? And I was like, (laughs) what is going on? And we just had bags and bags and bags of groceries to donate to our local food pantry. Right. And it, it made me think like we could be doing more charitable 
Mm -hmm. parties and gifts, right. And getting, I mean, the kids were so excited. I had them sign a card, you know, thanking the food pantry folks for their work. And it was just a very impactful moment. And I think it speaks volumes that that's the only party that she remembers and that she talks about. Right. So getting parents to think about is your kid's birthday in the summer? Maybe you can do a back to school drive. Is your kid's birthday in the winter? Maybe mm. you can do a winter clothing drive, right? Like there's so many organizations, people, communities that are in need. Um, and most of us have have way more than we right. need, Right. you know? Yeah, it's so good. And yeah. And for people who receive gifts that they don't love myself, I'm a very picky person to give things to, um, just let those things go. You yeah, don't have to keep let them, them go. You don't have to keep them. And I mean, the first thing that I do is offer them back to the giver. Well, first yeah. of all, at this point, they're not coming in my house, but I remember <laughs> when I was first starting to realize like Christine, the gift giving is out of control. I would say this is very beautiful, but you know, I, I know me and I'm not going to wear it. You know, would you like to receive it back or would you like me to, you know, find a loving home for it? But I just want to be, you know, fully transparent and let you know that I'm just not going to wear it. It's a no for me. (laughs) It's a no for me, though, you know. (laughs) Okay, let's take a quick break and then we'll be back. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last Three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. We're back. We're going to talk a bit about your writing process. So one of the things that I have seen on your Instagram is the space in which you did write some of this book or did write, I think, Mm -hmm. the majority of this book. Explain it to people. Give us a sense of what your writing setup is like. Also, please fill in the scene. Are there snacks and beverages? Do you listen to music? (laughs) Is there a candle? Like, What's the vibe as you write at this desk near the window? Or now it's near the window. It wasn't always now it's near the window. Yeah. That's the other thing about minimalism. Like you have everything that you love in your house and all you do is just move it from room to room (laughs) (laughs) and space to space. 
face to face. Um, yeah, so it's very interesting. I did, uh, I, I wrote a lot of this book at home, but I also wrote a lot of this book at Eaton Workshop, mm. um, DC. Uh, and it just ended up being a beautiful co working space that me and a few other DC writers uh, basically had like all to ourselves during mm. the pandemic. Um, and as you know, Jason Reynolds is one of those writers, Camon Felix. Um, John Allen Holland, like we had our separate offices, um, but it was so beautiful because we could like all have dinner together or we could, you know, like go down the hall and I could say like, you know, Jay, listen to this right quick, right? Like, how do you think this sounds? That kind of thing. And so that was like a really magical experience because even though, um, you know, a lot of writing happens in isolation the pandemic was just a little too isolating yeah. for us all the time. And we were like, actually, we need community. Not a lot of community because we all have deadlines, but I just don't want to be in isolation, right, right, writing right, right. in isolation all the time. So um, I give Eaton Workshop DC a shout out in my acknowledgments because mm-hmm. I would have never completed this book um, without them. And I say that because as you talk about set the scene, um, Folks like Jay and Kamon and Jonalyn are much better with uh, managing their diet. <laughs> mm. um, and so we know this like, about Jason. He doesn't like eat anything delicious. He oh eats like God. vegetables and like he's so water. freaking healthy, so healthy. But then he also is like Christina, six o'clock. Like we're gonna go downstairs and eat, and I would be like, "But what? No, like." <laughs> I'm a grown man. I need to eat. Right. Or, you know, come on, would be like, I'm hungry. Let's go. Um, and so it helped having, um, folks there to just kind of keep me on track, Mm. um, and remind me that it was time to eat because (laughs) I am one of those writers that like, I just get caught up in the work. Right. And then I look at the clock and I'm like, is it seven o'clock? And then I stand up and I'm dizzy and, you know, like, why am I so dizzy? Oh yeah. You haven't eaten all day. Right. Um, and so it also really helped me get a better balance Mm. in terms of like, you got to eat Christine, you got to get up and move, you got to walk, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and then when I'm home, um, it is much worse. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> um, because my house is super cozy. The refrigerator's right there. The bed is also right there, mm. you know, so I'll, you know, I will transition from the desk to the bed and I know I shouldn't write in bed, but then I'll write in bed and then I'll take a nap and it's definitely less structure. Right. Um, at home, but there is this comfort, um, especially when I'm like really, really up against a deadline. Um, that, you know, if I need to write until 1am and then fall into bed and just take a little nap and then get up because the edits are due at 6am, I can do that. Um, you know, when the weather was really nice, the thing about writing with friends, <laughs> especially with people, uh, like Jason, who has obviously Matt, he would hate that I say this, but really has mastered, I would say, you know, much of this craft is that, he could be done with what he needs to be done within six hours. Mm. Right. And he'd be like, it's gorgeous outside. Let's go. You know? And then I'd look up and we'd be outside for like four right. hours. And I'm right. like, damn it. You know? <laughs> um, but it was good again. You know, I'm, I'm very grateful for that time. I don't think that I'd ever been around um, so many other writers to get to see like how they manage their craft you know, what are some things that I could be doing differently? What are some things that are, you know, helpful? What are some Mm. things that are hindrance? Um, And so, yeah, it was just a really magical time. Um, You all kind of made up your own like writer's retreat almost. We had our, we had like a whole writer's retreat during COVID. And then, you know, it's one of those things too, where, um, and Jonalyn as well is part is part of the Rhode Island Writers Colony. Um, Jason is our artistic director, which is why we, you know, have all have such a close relationship with him. But we never had a chance to spend that much time because mm. he was always traveling. He was mm-hmm. like all over the place. And so, yeah, we are all like especially just grateful because it was like we had an opportunity to write and work in projects in isolation with, you know, one of our generation's greatest writers. So it was a really magical time. Um, And now we're out of COVID and now we're all like, what do we do? (laughs) So I've been writing at home 
um, recently, you know, the world reopening, it's been a bit much. Um, and so, yeah, I've found, I found a lot of comfort now writing at home. I have moved my desk away from the window, um, Tracy, (laughs) it is out in my living room where I'm less distracted. And, um, yeah, I've found, I've found a really good rhythm and I've definitely kept, you know, some kept up some of the practices that I learned from my friends during that time, you know, in isolation. That's yeah. so cool that you all were able to find that. That's it was just, so cool. I'm so jealous, yeah. like being home alone versus know. like knowing you all were doing, <laughs> being together. Isn't Eaton also like a hotel? It is. It is like okay. the social um, justice hospitality space. It's just a magical place in general. Um, and they have very limited office spaces. And of course, during the pandemic, no one was in their office spaces right. or very few people. Um and so, yeah, we just had like the whole, it was like our, That's it was so like cool. our, it was so, it was so cool. Like it, it's definitely something I want to write about one day. Cause it was just I super, super magical. We yeah. haven't even talked about kind of your origin story, your pre Afro minimalist self, oh, but you're yes. a writer before you were writing before. Mm-hmm. And before that you were a lawyer, like a yeah. government lawyer, like a high powered, yeah. you know, yeah. click, clicky clack, high <laughs> heel kind of person. Clicky clack, high heel policy advisor as a senior policy advisor. So worked in the intersections of law and policy and environmental uh, justice uh, and energy law. And it was a wild, wild time. And, you know, it was during the um, recovery act. So under, Um, the Obama administration and, you know, the Department of Energy had like billions of dollars to spend, which was so, um, you know, not the norm. Um, And so it was just very, it was just a very magical time. You know, you get a directive from the White House and Mm -hmm. it's President Barack Obama signed (laughs) in. You're just like, oh my God, you know, Um, you know, and then it was like, which, you know, with this shift and change of administration, you know, so many people were starting to make their exit. And I remember thinking like, I'm in my early thirties. Like, is this where I'm going to plateau? Like I cannot plateau here. Um, And at that time, you know, I'd been mothering and lawyering (laughs) for, um, gosh, I mean, I just been in school or working nonstop. And I said, you know what, I'm just going to take some time and, you know, let me just pursue this writing thing. Like, and of course everyone romanticizes being a full-time writer and I surely did. And I was in my mind, once I left the department of energy, I could write tens of thousands of novels a year. Right. right? right, right, right. <laughs> um, and just learned very quickly that like, you know, the billable hours and the structured schedule that I was used to, that my cr- creativity was like, uh, ma'am, we're not, right you were not creating from nine to twelve you know what I mean like right. I I it was it was very frustrating that my creativity wouldn't conform to the schedule mm. that I had set um and so yeah that was like my first sort of real understanding that like this is a job this is you know I feel like that first book and the first book for me was uh the truth about a wee tea um it was my NaNoWriMo book I'm really proud of a lot of NaNoWriMo books that um, become novels. And um, that was the book that got me an agent. And so by the time I was home romanticizing about all the novels that I was going to write, it was when it really hit me. It's like, oh, this is a job and this is a lot of work. Mm. And like, you do not take on this type of commitment to make money to like, you just have to love it. You know, like you think about it and you work on a book for a year, five years and that's it right right? and then you got to work on another book and then you got to wait for royalties and then you know i like to really i think it's a a career that people glamorize um and there are you know surely glamorous moments um but it's it's a lot of work it's Mm. a lot it's a lot of work um and you have to love it you just have to love it you know right you're a smart lawyer, writer, (laughs) minimalist, human, what is the word you could never spell correctly on the first try? (laughs) I don't even know, Tracy. There's so many. I am literally (laughs) 
the worst speller. We should have a worst spell off because I am truly, it's embarrassing. No one <laughs> would believe it. They would, they would be like, there's Christine. There's an, I, I, it is, it is awful. I would win. I don't think so. I don't think it's possible. I don't, I don't know if we should be like bragging about this, but like. <laughs> I'm proud of it. I'm a terrible speller. We have, just like I'm bad at math and we have calculators, I'm a terrible speller and I have those red squiggly lines to guide me on my path. <laughs> yeah, I'm a terrible speller and I, you know, it is what it is. I want to have that contest. I think it'll be fun. We should have, we should have like a really good speller do it and they'll just be so embarrassed and like. <laughs> Really, guys? You don't know this one? Yeah. <laughs> Someone just messaged me that success was a word that they can't spell. And I was like, I feel that. There's too many. It's all the consonants are what get me. If it has a lot of consonants, yeah. I'm out. Yeah. Yeah. For me, if I can find like a rhythm to it or like a, like a, like this is going to sound so crazy, but I remember, still remember learning how to spell Mississippi. Oh, yeah. And you have to do school, the rhythm. It was like, M-I-S-S-I-S-S-I-P-P-I, right? Yeah. Like yeah. I can get that, but like if someone is like, spell Antarctica, I would be like, uh, you know what I yeah, mean? Like, that's me too. So yeah. <laughs> it's like not second nature. Like I really have to sound out every word as I write it. I have to sound it out. Absolutely. <laughs> and if it has, that's why, that's why when there's like double consonants, I get messed up because I'm like, well, like my word that I always say is recommend, but I'm like, I don't know, rec recommend or recommend I'm like are there two c's I don't know how many m's and you know what I get it wrong every single time and I write the word recommend all the time that's like my number one written word and I spell it wrong constantly okay thank god for spell check truly thank god for spell check okay um for people who love your book the Minimalist guide to living with less what are a few books that you might recommend to them to check out that are kind of in conversation or will help them on their journey Yes. I mean, you know, Marie Kondo's classic, um, you know, um, I, I really love her approach. Highly recommend. Um, definitely project three, 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 you know, that is my jam. Um, and I also think I would encourage folks to look for books that don't have minimalism in the title, right? Like maybe you're looking for books on simplicity, mm. right? Simplicity is a really um, good search term for when you're looking to live with less. Um, I think, you know, look again, looking at ways to live with less. Oh, there's another book. Um, oh, again, this is another area that I'm, I really suck at in terms <laughs> of like with spelling, like the titles of yeah. books and you can, well, Folks can't see, but um, I have a color-coded uh, bookshelf behind me, and I actually me too. Uh, yeah, I remember mm -hmm. my book covers by color. Yeah, right. Same, and same, so, if same, someone says like, "What book is that?" I would be like, "Oh yeah, that's the book with the yellow cover." Um, and actually, it just made me think. Um, the book is called "In Praise of Slowness." Mm. This book is okay. so magical, um, and so yeah. If I, now that I think about it, in addition to, you know, the usual suspects, Marie Kondo, you know, um, Project 333, um, you know, this book, In Praise of Slowness by Carl Honore, and that's spelled H-O-N-O-R-E with an X on Tegu over the E. Ooh, okay, Carl. <laughs> uh oh, you know what I'm saying? Um, <laughs> But what I what I loved about that um, that book, and I read it very early on in my uh, practice, is how it really talks about how our culture went from one of simplicity to one of just speed and this constant need to get things done or be doing things. And it was really with the invention of the light bulb and the invention of the clock, and that was mm. like changed everything for us. And so that book talks about everything from living slow to cooking slow, if you are a partner to making love slow, like it is just a beautiful, mm. it's a beautiful book. So yeah, I love it. Okay, last one. If you could have one person dead or alive, read your book, who would it be? Oh, I mean, I just love Octavia Butler. Okay. I know she would be like, girl, I'm not trying to be a minimalist, but I'd be like, but I just want you to read my book. <laughs> That's fair. Um, you know, I, yeah, she, you know, she's the reason I started writing. Um, she was the reason I wrote the truth about a wee tea 
And I just admire her approach to breaking barriers and, you know, making a space and a name for herself in the literary world in genres that, you know, we're not really welcoming um, or accepting of, you know, black women writers in that space at that time, which I guess is kind of what I'm doing. Yeah, it is. It's definitely <laughs> you know? a conversation for sure. Uh, well, Christine, this has been so great. Thank you so much. Everybody at home, I will link to all of Christine's platforms and where you can find her on Instagram so you too can fall in love with her beautiful home and her oh, beautiful energy and just everything. <laughs> and Christine, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Tracy. This is the best. This is so good. Everyone else, we will see you in the stack. Thank you for listening and thank you to Christine for being my guest. I'd also like to thank Nicole Dewey for making this interview possible. Our July book club pick is The Best We Could Do by T. Bowie, and we will discuss the book on Wednesday, July 28th with Mira Jacob. If you like what you hear, consider supporting The Stacks by going to patreon.com slash The Stacks. Please make sure you're subscribed to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, take a moment to leave us a rating and a review. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. Sebastian Alcala is our sound editor and producer. Our graphic designer is Robin McCright. And our theme music is from Tagirages. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. <laughs> <laughs>